0: I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm professor in the International Relations Department and director of the US Center uh, at LSE which is hosting uh, today's lecture. Today's lecture is part of the US Center's Fallon Family Lecture Series which is made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy Fallon Foundation. It really gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker, and discussant today, Professor Barry Eichengreen and Professor Stephanie Rickert. Professor Eichengreen is the George and Helen Party Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Mass, and a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research here in London. A former senior policy advisor at the IMF, And a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Barry is the author of many books, edited volumes, and far too many journal articles, essays, and book chapters to count. His newest book is entitled The Populist Temptation, Economic Grievance and Political Reaction in the Modern Era with Oxford, which you can buy online in the chat window uh, today. We're also very fortunate to have Professor Stephanie Rickard on the platform with us to help kick off what I know will be a very lively discussion. She is Professor of Political Science at LSE in the Department of Government. Her research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of politics and international economics. She's written extensively in leading academic journals about trade agreements and international Financial Rescues, and is the author of the award-winning Spending to Win Political Institutions, Economic Geography, and Government Subsidies with Cambridge. Stephanie comments frequently on various media outlets on current events in the global economy, including the BBC and Bloomberg. And last but not least, we are proud to counter as one of our own faculty affiliates at the US Center. A few words about the format before we get started. Barry will begin. He'll get us started with 30 or so minutes of of comments. We'll then hand things over to Stephanie who will offer some comments on Barry's argument to really get the discussion started. We'll then open it up to all of you. We've left plenty of time for uh, questions. So please, please don't be shy. You can send your questions to us via the Q and A function on Zoom. And I will do my level best to put as many of them as possible uh, to Barry and to Stephanie during the discussion period. So normally at this point in the opening, I would ask all of you to put your hands together to give our speakers one of those warm LSE welcomes. That of course is not possible today. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions in the Q&A period. Very welcome to LSE's online platform. It's great to have you with us. And we very much appreciate your willingness to do this at 8 a.m. in the morning Pacific time. Thanks very much. Platform- Peter.
1: I'm grateful for the kind introduction. I'm happy to be back at the LSE, although uh, I only wish I really was back at the LSE. Um, I do welcome the uh, opportunity to uh, talk about my 2018 book, The, uh, the Populist Temptation, which was uh, written largely in reaction to the election of Donald Trump, though also in light of the uh, the Brexit referendum and the election of proto-populist leaders in a variety of other countries. It's an opportunity to uh, revisit the issues. My Berkeley colleague, Brad DeLong, likes to talk about marking his views to market. Uh, So that's what I'm gonna do uh, this London afternoon. I think this is an opportune time to do so uh, since Trump's defeat earlier this month uh, led not a few headline writers to uh, ask whether populism is dead. There are uh, varying views, different answers to that question, uh, in part because there are different views uh, of whether uh, Trump is really a populist or whether Brexit was properly regarded as a populist movement. I would uh, suggest that the best way of answering those questions is by starting with a definition of populism and working out from there. uh, And and not surprisingly, I prefer the definition in, in my book To wit, uh, populism is a political movement with anti-elite, anti-other, and authoritarian elements, three uh, dimensions, uh, all of which we have to think about, although different uh, populist movements and leaders combine those elements in different ways. uh, In particular, populist movements of the left emphasize the anti-elite element, while, Those on the right emphasize the anti-other aspect. Populist uh, policies uh, emphasize aspiration uh, rather than realism. They're not informed or disciplined by data uh, and and in practice do not have a particularly positive record of uh, achieving the stated goals. Populist leaders personalize politics, emphasizing uh, forceful person- personality, using provocative, politically incorrect rhetoric. Uh, so populism has both a, a substantive aspect and a, a psychological slash rhetorical aspect. The appeal of populism uh, uh derives from two sets uh, of issues, economic concerns, uh, those uh, of the left behind, uh, the economically left behind, the economically insecure and identity politics, uh, the plain people versus uh, the other where others can be defined in in various ways. In the book, I emphasize the economic concerns, uh, presumably because I'm an economist, I'm more comfortable analyzing economic issues because that's what I'm trained to do. Uh, And moreover, the appeal of a strong populist leader more generally reflects disenchantment with the normal institutions and procedures of government. It reflects uh, disenchantment associated with the perception that government has failed to deliver the goods and that it needs a forceful leader to whip it into shape, one might say, to uh, to drain the swamp. So um, given recent events, uh, how would I answer the question of whether Trump is uh, a, a populist and what motivates uh, Trump's voters? How would I answer the question of whether Brexit was, uh, uh, was and is a populist movement and what motivates Leave voters. Um, first, uh, I, I, I would argue that Trump, despite what we have learned about him in the last four years, still checks all the boxes of a uh, of a classic right wing populist. He has authoritarian tendencies in that he he disregards uh, checks and balances. He mixes the the personal and, and the political, or, or you could say the personal and the professional. He disrespects limits on the, uh, the power of his office. Uh, to be sure, he's not a left-wing politics. He's firmly a member of the uh, uh, elite himself, and his actual economic policies, many of them uh, favor, or, 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 or maybe I can now say favored, uh, the elite uh, he's firmly anti-other, anti-racial minority, anti-Islam, anti-immigrant, anti-feminist. Uh, his appeal is to white, evangelical, suburban, uh, disproportionately male voters who once constituted the, the majority of, of America and see themselves as now losing their majority status uh, uh uh, to, to these other groups. It follows that uh, I, I would now place more weight on, uh, on the identity politics and less on uh, economic insecurity uh, compared to the, the weight I placed on, on the two factors in my book when uh, attempting to explain uh, Trump's appeal. In a sense, uh, that's a worrisome revision I think we know much more about how to address uh, uh, economic inequality and uh, insecurity, at least in principle, through education and training, through progressive taxation, through place-based policies, than we know uh, uh, about how to address identity concerns. In my book, I I pointed to evidence that when different groups in society interact with one another, they develop more mutual trust and understanding. So I therefore suggested that uh, uh, encouraging residential integration, encouraging the integration of schools were ways of addressing some of the more destructive aspects of identity politics. But those ideas are, are, are relatively weak Soup and they take a a long period of time to work. As for Brexit, uh, I'm convinced by evidence showing that the vote had a lot to do with fear of the other. Uh, The Leave vote was strong where fear of immigrants was greatest. Ironically, often where there were relatively few immigrants, so the latter were were seen as uh, foreign or alien, as unfamiliar, as threatening, but at the same time where immigrant levels were rising strongly from those low levels. In 2016, it could be debated whether uh, Brexit would help uh, economically left behind regions, uh, whether it would help or or hurt the country as a whole from an economic standpoint. The, the, The latter is no longer debatable, but uh, uh, the fact that the economic costs are uh, significant and that many of them actually fall most heavily on the same regions where the leave vote was highest. uh, Again, I think that's uh, no longer debatable, uh, but this has led to no change in public opinion. So I conclude that, that Brexit is not first and foremost about economics, Rather, it's about taking back control from the other, which in this cl- case uh, in, in includes Europeans. The other thing that's changed since 2018, of course, is COVID-19. COVID changes everything, it is said. So how does it change the, uh, the prospects for populism? Uh, I think I would say two things uh, about this. First, uh, my own recent research suggests that the pandemic will further erode trust in government, in uh, mainstream leaders, and in political institutions, including elections, parliaments, and courts. Uh, that work has been in a series uh, of papers written together with Shavat Aksoy of uh, King's College London, across the street, and uh Saka, of the University of uh, of Sussex and none other than uh, the LSE. So what what we have done is to use uh, data from the world Gallup polls uh, conducted in upwards uh, of 130 countries where respondents are asked about their trust in confidence in uh, national leaders and uh, political institutions, including uh, elections and others. And we, we combine those survey uh, responses, upwards of 100,000 of them uh, um, taken over time, with uh, data on epidemics past, data on 34 epidemics affecting more than 100 countries at, at, at different points in time. And, and we find strong evidence of a, a, a negative impact of What might be called uh, epidemic exposure, especially on the part of uh, uh, people in their psychologically impressionable years of 18 to 25 years old. If uh, there's an epidemic in your country when you are in that age bracket, you are subsequently, persistently, for the balance of your lifetime, basically less uh confident in you display less trust in, in political leaders uh, in elections and in, in uh, government more generally. Um, so I think the danger uh, it, it is that uh, there will be the uh, a, a belief on the part of generation Z, if you will, that mainstream politicians and um, uh, conventional political leaders, Uh, haven't delivered on their promises to uh, uh, contain the epidemic, to stabilize the economy, whatever, and that that may open the door to more to additional Donald Trump or, if you like, uh, Boris Johnson-like politicians who put relatively little stock in those uh, mainstream politics and conventional political inst- institutions and seek to uh, substitute their own rhetorical flourishes flourishes and and personal charisma such as it is um, secondly, our research shows that uh, the effectiveness of national policies taken in response to covid nineteen uh, uh, has been leased where Uh, The government in question has been led by a a, a populist political figure, not only Trump, but Bolsonaro, obviously, and others. The point uh, generalizes. This isn't a new finding. It isn't a a, a surprising finding. I think we've learned that uh, mobilizing an effective response to COVID-19 requires respecting and, and, and mobilizing the institutions of government, something that doesn't come naturally to populist leaders who have uh, previously drained that swamp of many of its most competent denizens. Uh, a competent response involves making policy uh, informed by data rather than by instinct. Again, something that doesn't come naturally to populist politicians. We've seen the popularity of politicians who um, managed the COVID-19 crisis, uh, the public health crisis poorly, decline as a result. So ironically, that may be something of a a ray of hope that COVID has laid bare the uh, incompetence of populist policymaking, uh, something that uh, voters may take on board in the future. On the other hand, uh, uh, it may not have affected voters that profoundly. Uh, Trump lost this month's US election uh, by a a surprisingly small margin, I would argue, given the severity of the COVID crisis in the United States. Um, Bolsonaro's popularity is recovering despite the severity of COVID in Brazil. Maybe Trump's labeling of COVID-19 as the Chinese virus was an effective way of uh, deflecting blame onto the other, making the pandemic a matter of identity politics rather than a matter of uh, economics and public health. And if you've been following the debate over masking and uh, uh, what will soon be an uh, rejuvenated anti vax movement in the united states i i i i think you would agree there's something to the point if so and uh on on this uh less than hopeful note, i will conclude it's at least possible that um populist politicians will will be able to capitalize on this crisis just like they've capitalized on other crises in the past so um Those are my opening remarks. I look forward to hearing the uh, reactions from Stephanie and from uh, the audience.
0: That's great, uh, Barry, thanks very much. Um, Stephanie, so Barry's got an interesting take uh, in his book on the sources of populism in the US, UK, and elsewhere. So you've had a chance to look at the book, take review the book and uh, read through it. Um, So what do you make of it, Barry onto something? Things left, other things that should be brought up, floor is yours, or I guess the platform is yours.
2: Thanks, Peter. And thank you very much, Barry. I think um, I encourage all everybody watching to read Barry's book. It is so rich in historical detail and reminds us that what we're seeing right now is not necessarily something new. We've seen these kind of patterns before, so we can put it in a historical context, and Barry does that very well in his book. So I really encourage you all to read it uh, and to buy it, of course. Um, so there are three things I want to draw out um, further uh, from Barry's book and from, indeed, his presentation. So the first is this idea of the sources of populism. To what extent is it economic? To what extent is it uh, an identity issue? The second is the role of political institutions, and the third is the role of social welfare spending so starting with the sources of populism i mean barry alluded to this but there really has been this sort of knockdown, down drag out fight about whether the source of populism is really about economics and economic threat and economic insecurity or identity and um i think barry's right to say that it's it's got to be both right and i think that It's it's a a fool's errand to try to say it's one or the other. And so just as an example, in my own research in the United Kingdom, I found, for example, that these areas of the UK that get hard by import shocks, people in those areas then adopt these more authoritarian values, values that say the past was better, we need a strong leader, we need to take back control. And it's those authoritarian values that are then very closely correlated with voting leave in the referendum on EU membership. So that's an interesting way where it shows both economics and identity matter. In our causal story, it's the economic shock but that, that engenders some of these very particular values, these authoritarian values, this sense of identity or self that then shapes a populist position or support for a populist position. So I, I wonder if, um, given Barry's uh, new stance of thinking that there's more of a role for identity or values or sort of authoritarianism, if that sort of would square with his new position. So my second point then is coming to political institutions. It always warms my heart when I see an economist talking about political institutions. (laughs) So I think Barry's right to put political institutions in the hot seat. They're an important part of this story because political institutions shape how governments respond to both economic shocks, economic threats, and to populism. So it's a good area to investigate. And Barry asks this question very clearly. He says, what kind of political system is best placed to respond to the populist threat? And so there are many different ways that we could evaluate political systems. And Barry does it by looking at how much room they provide for a populist party to emerge, for a populist party or a populist leader to win office. And I think that's an important way to evaluate political systems and seeing how they create space or not for populists. But another way to think about it is to not only look at do populist parties emerge, but even where they don't emerge, Do they influence mainstream parties? Do they influence existing parties? Do they change existing parties' platforms, their positions, their ideal policy outcomes? Because that's another way that we could think about the way in which existing systems, existing institutions, existing party systems may be coping or not with the populist threat and the rise of populism. We could also of course look at policy responses and I think this idea of looking at how different governments and different types of political systems are responding to COVID is a really interesting uh, way to push forward and I, I look forward to raise research on that. I guess I would just on this point sort of uh, remind everyone that of course there's no single best political institution or political system because how institutions work, how the rules of the game work depends on the context that they're operating in. So the exact same political institution is gonna work differently in one country than another country because of the context. And the context could be defined by economic cleavages, the geography of different groups that hold similar preferences, even by things like culture. So there's no single best institution, but I think it's a really important place to start to think about how can we respond to populists if we change our institutions or modify our institutions. And finally, I think a really important point that emerges very clearly in the book is the potential role of social welfare systems. So Barry does a really nice job of showing us this dramatic decline in support for right-wing populist parties at the same time that we really see an expansion of social welfare policies. And so part of this sort of change is is set out and laid out in the book, but it's interesting to me. And I'd like to ask Barry, you know, the, the last possible explanation he gives for it is the social welfare state and the expansion of the social welfare state. There are many other reasons that come first. And I wonder if that's because you think the social welfare system, the security nets that can help people protect people from economic uh, insecurity, protect people from economic threats. Is that the least important part of responding to populists? Is it necessary to have a very strong and well-funded social welfare system to stop the rise of populism? It's certainly not a sufficient condition because we see countries with big, generous welfare states that have populist parties. Here I'm thinking about France. They spend 30% of their GDP on social welfare programs, and yet they have this very popular, very politically engaged and strong right-wing populist party, uh, Le Pen's Front National. So it's not sufficient, but maybe it's necessary. And so I wonder if we have the right policies, we have the infrastructure, structure for the right policies in place, but we just haven't funded them sufficiently. But then, of course, the political question is, how do you build a political coalition that's going to be willing to fund them sufficiently to tax people and to redistribute that wealth towards offsetting the economic threat? that seems related with populism. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.
0: I would like to turn it over to you, Barry, to give you an opportunity to to respond there's a lot there so maybe pick and choose but um, uh, sure. I mean, the floor is yours
1: I found it um, fascinating how The economist emphasized the uh, the political institutions and the political scientists brought us back to <laughs> import competition and uh, and the economics uh, and 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 of course there's an important role for 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 both uh, in the United States we know, how powerfully the China shock affected uh, political preferences, how there was movement to both extremes uh, in, in the specific areas where the intensification of import competition from China was greatest. So, and so I wouldn't deny the importance of uh, economic dislocation and economic insecurity resulting from that In uh, in particular. On the, uh, political institutions, Stephanie brings me back to uh my my very first book, which was on the, the gold standard in the Great Depression, where I argued that uh um, proportional representation in the in the 1920s and 1930s was part of the problem of uh uh making coherent po- policy and mobilizing a policy response. And later in life I became uh uh developed arguments about how proportional representation was part of the solution in many European countries after World War II. So it is very much context-specific, uh, the effect of political institutions. Um, I, think, I think that's enough to get us going.
0: Okay, that's great. So first of all, we've got folks, uh, well, we have folks from from the U.K., and from Ireland, France, Italy, Bangladesh, India, uh, and the U.S. Somebody else is up early with you, Barry, over there. So, um, so that's great. Um, I, I want to, um, actually, I, was, I have a question for you myself that I'd like to put to you, but it's kind of anticipated, in one of the questions that's already come through, and And please, the the Q&A function is open. I see we've already got two dozen questions in there. This one comes from Cheryl Hudson. I'm gonna kind of reframe it a little bit. She asks, isn't it the case that populism is a response to the failures of liberalism? And in particular, she points out or she raises the question, looking back at those polls in the case of Brexit, um, that, it was there was talk about taking back control but not so much from the other but rather from neoliberal institutions of the eu and what i would like to ask maybe just to sharpen this a bit for both of you is to what extent so there's the economic argument and there's the cultural argument and these things are they're hard to separate and um there's overlap and and so forth and there's endogeneity there but some of this seems to be a reaction also to the sovereignty costs of global governance and a kind of pushback in the european case the eu in the u.s case too much multilateralism too much reliance on you know engagement with the wto or the paris climate agreement um, you know, that, that Trump got traction uh, by pushing back against multilateral trade packages like the TPP. Even Hillary Clinton in 2016 was running from something she negotiated, which was the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So I wonder if there's not like a third category here that, that where the concern, just to pick up on Cheryl Hudson's point, is about sovereignty and loss of control in that sense, that of uh, uh, the loss of national sovereignty to international institutions. Thoughts from either of you on that?
1: It brings me back to uh, the other point that Stephanie made that I neglected to address, which was uh, uh, about the importance of a social safety net as a uh, uh, buffer against populist pressures. Um, why is uh globalization or trade uh an issue uh i to to my mind it is an, an issue because of the uh, insecurity economic insecurity in particular that that it is associated with so um a lot lot of people have been arguing and had been arguing for some years uh before trump or Brexit, One thinks of Danny Roderick at Harvard, for example, uh, who had a book a decade or decades before about whether globalization had gone too far. And that's, uh, to my mind, an argument that globalization is sustainable only if it's combined with married with uh, adequate protections for those who are are apt to be displaced through no fault of their own as a result. when I uh, looked back in 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 the course of a contemporaneous project in twenty eighteen, at the eighteen ninety six uh, election between the populist William Jennings Bryan and William McKinley, uh, and at both why uh, Bryan was ultimately defeated and and also why. Uh, similar politicians didn't gain traction immediately thereafter part of the answer was the progressive movement, which had elements of that, uh, what we would call in the United States antitrust and, uh, social safety net union army pensions for all, not only the disabled, but all all union army veterans in the immediate aftermath of that election. So I, I would, uh, Uh, acknowledge what you're you're asking Peter and and the question, I think it has heavily uh, uh, economic component to it, but also uh, um, it was convenient for Trump to be able to blame the Chinese and it was convenient for uh, Nigel Farage to be able to blame the Europeans.
0: Very good, Stephanie, thoughts on this? You wanna respond?
2: Yeah, I think that um, it's hard to disentangle these concerns about sovereignty from economic threats. And it's interesting the EU has actually provided additional sources to try to help people who've been displaced by globalization. And it looks like, at least in France, there's some effect that these extra funds are decreasing support for um, the Le Pen's party, which is an anti-EU, anti-globalist party. So maybe combining increased spending or increased support for people who feel like they're losing from uh, globalization or who whose area is being hurt by globalization, by spending more on these areas, on these programs, potentially, maybe there's some suggestive evidence that says you're gonna decrease this reaction against the European Union, this reaction against the global institutions. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and this is an interesting um, uh, way to reflect on the on the prospects for the biden admin- administration, which we're all um, beginning to think about uh more multilateral seeking to reengage with uh, the rest of the world will this administration be able to complement that with Uh, education and training and industrial and infrastructure-related policies that will address the concerns that uh, globalization understandably uh, creates among members of the public, or will its attempts be frustrated?
0: Yeah, you almost think that what they need is the equivalent Of some kind of environmental impact statement, like a domestic impact every time they want to do something internationally, multilaterally, that they check off and think through what the distributive consequences of it really are going to be and that they're almost, you know, that they they put themselves through the exercise of doing that uh, publicly. Look, there are a lot of questions here. We're up to thirty-five, and there's some great ones. So I wanna, I wanna bundle a couple here. Um, uh, I think these go together, and they pick up the the points that both of you have been making about uh, the uh, issues about welfare spending. Nora Lorenz, I'm not sure where she's from. She just gave her name. How does the argument? that an expansion of welfare decreases support for populist regimes. Work in a country like Poland, where the right-wing populist party has used redistribution as a tool to cement its popularity. And just hold that, as you think about that, there's a question that came in a little bit earlier um, that struck me as, a good bookend for this that came from Kevin Ryan in France. Did Trump lose because he failed to confront and was ultimately co-opted by the neoliberal agenda of the Republican party? He did not deliver on the populist infrastructure promises like new highways. So I think here the question is, if Trump had gone another way with policies, remember the first thing he did out of the box, was was not infrastructure which is what he was talking about doing the first thing out of the box polarized the country it was the travel ban which was intensely polarizing in, in 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 january 2017 but if he had gone with something like infrastructure he might have cleaved the Democratic party um you know and so it I guess the the question here is you know to what extent I mean we've about the case of Poland, maybe arguably Hungary too, where they're really using the levers of welfare spending to shore up political support. And Trump, in a way, is al- almost did the opposite. He played, as you suggest, Barry, the identity card, but he didn't fully like drill down and invest heavily in, in these kinds of um, initiatives, lunch pail initiatives that really probably would have paid dividends for, you know, many of those who voted for. Thoughts on that? On these questions that are coming in?
1: The way I would uh, char- characterize the question is Trump revealed himself to be a right-wing populist rather than a left-wing populist, where, whereas in which direction he would go was not obvious mm-hmm. before he took office. Uh, populist politicians are charismatic characters uh, and you know charisma has different meanings uh, but by which I mean uh, personality matters even more than, uh, than than it does in the typical political setting. So how this particular character would uh, develop while in office wasn't Obvious in 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 January 2017. So I think we learned uh, what kind of populist Trump was. As a result, the counterfactual history is is interesting. I'm not too good at, at counterfactual history <laughs> myself, and I'm not that knowledgeable about the Polish case. But we we know that the levers of of government government programs can be used to try to. Uh, build a social safety net that benefits society as a whole and reconciles openness with uh, the demand for security or to prop up a, a government in, in, in power. If I look at uh, uh, FDR in the 1930s, I see elements of both, if you will, the desire to create uh, a social safety net by creating social security. It wasn't called social security. For nothing. It was a response to the perception of insecurity, but it was done in a way that devolved a lot of control to Southern segregationist politicians in the Democratic Party whose support FDR needed in, 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 in order to stay in office and advance his own particular agenda. So I think we often see elements of the two.
0: Stephanie?
2: I think um, these questions uh, strike a a note with me. It's a question that I've struggled with um, myself, is if we think that people are turning to populists because they are feeling economically insecure, because they don't think their quality of life will continue to improve, because they don't see their children doing better than they did, then why are they voting for right-wing populists? Like, you know, it makes sense that they're going to vote for left-wing populists, but why then vote for right-wing populists who's not redistributing income, who's not, you know, improving your quality of life? And so that's a question that I don't have a good answer to. I think it's a really important question, and I don't know the Polish case, but I'm going to learn more about it because that seems like a really interesting puzzle to try to understand.
1: And it's uh, uh, the, the number of cases of right-wing populism that drive me toward the identity politics strand of, of this argument.
0: Yeah, well, you just answered one question that just came in actually while you were talking, Stephanie, but um, you know, from Patrick McGovern at UCL, which was if populism can exist on both the left and the right of politics, is there an explanation as to why it has been more often though not exclusively accompanied with the right wing in, in recent years. And I think you've you both have just put your, your, your finger on it by suggesting that, you know, that it underscores perhaps the importance of, uh, of the identity politics as being like a, a real um, driver here. Um, let's see, um, um, wow. Um, so here's a question, um, <laughs> Stephanie from um, uh, from your uh, colleague Francesco Panizza. Um, it seems that the loss of trust in political institutions, and more specifically on mainstream parties, is at the roots of the rise of populism everywhere. What do you think accounts for the loss of trust and what can be made to regain it? Barry, this actually brings us back to your lecture as well. So maybe you wanna take the first bite at that apple um, on the trust question. And we know, for example, from from the Pew polls in the United States, if we just focus on the US, that this is a a long-term secular trend. It did not just start. I mean, it goes back 20 years that you can see, at least, you know, that you can see this kind of slow erosion of uh, trust in, in government. And of course, you know, Democrats always have less trust when Republicans in office and a Republican, when a Democrat holds the white house, but nevertheless, you see overall this kind of secular decline. So some thoughts about that on, I mean, given that it's, it's so long-term it, you know, uh, it, it it's secular in the sense that the rise of economic inequality is secular or the rise of partisan polarization, also a very long-term trend that goes back to, geez, late 70s, early 1980s. Um, I don't know what's driving what here or whether they're even related. Thoughts on this, though, on the trust question? It's an important one, it seems to me.
1: Stephanie, do you want to go?
2: It is a political science <laughs> question. I am <mean, laughs> just gonna I'm gonna take a step backwards. You know, mm-hmm. where does trust come from? That's a hard question. And just say that we know trust is an important part of the populism story, because all countries face these external economic shocks, right? All countries are exposed in different variations to globalization. All countries ex- experience the global financial shocks. So. Economic shocks or economic security themselves are insufficient, but it's it's the sort of combination, and Barry details this very nicely in his book, it's when you get an economic shock, when you have economic security, and there's not trust in the institutions and the politicians that populists are most successful. So I think trust is a good explanation for why we see populism in some countries and not others. But that brings us back to the fundamental question of where what erodes trust and why. So back to you, Barry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I, I um, was going to respond uh, similarly to you, Peter, in that I think polarization, which has uh, been rising in parallel with the decline in in, in trust. Those are related phenomena. At any point in time, about half of, of American society thinks that uh um the, the the government in office at the moment is following untrustworthy, flawed, self-interested policies. And that um polarization is part uh, of the story. The other thing uh, I I, I would suggest is that uh, legitimacy, uh, uh, perceived legitimacy of government and trust go together. And political scientists tell us that uh, there's input legitimacy and output legitimacy. The decline of input legitimacy is the idea that people think government is not hearing them and it's not uh, responding to their their preferences, and output le- legitimacy refers to the idea that government is not adequately responding to the global financial crisis, or the COVID crisis, or the import displacement crisis. And and uh, we are living in in uh, a, a, a very turbulent period, which is straining the capacity of governments, even the most competent governments to respond and I, I, I think that's corrosive uh, of crust as well.
0: So we've got more folks on here from, uh, we have folks now from Costa Rica, Mexico, Serbia. This is one of the great things about the LSE platform. Um, very, very global. Um, wow, so, um, so there's a question here, um, so there's a question you, you've. This comes from Bindu uh, Venkatesh from um, uh, from India, and it's about globalization um, and the extent to which it led to the rise of populism and right and, and right wing culture, and specifically the erosion of the middle class in Europe and the U.S but i'm wondering if we could put a twist on this a little bit and i know that you've addressed this some Barry, in the in the book but you didn't really talk about it in in your talk and maybe you could amplify on this to what extent should we be focused on globalization or on uh automation and in and, and and that technology driver or are these things just so bound up that you know we we it's not even worth drawing a distinction. Um, but I, I think about this kind of going forward, I, I sometimes wonder if the first wave was globalization and the second wave is gonna be automation and that we, it's like we haven't seen anything yet in terms of displacement. So, you know, I'm wondering if you could kind of amplify on, on what you, you wrote about on this in, in the book and Stephanie also, I'd like to open this up to you. So she's asked about globalization per se, but you've addressed that to some extent, if we could broaden it a little bit to the technology side of the question.
1: The way I think about this, and uh, I would suggest the way most economists think about it is that uh, in recent decades, both globalization and skill bias technical change, which is a more old fashioned Way uh, uh, of referring to what Peter you you referred to as automation or AI mm-hmm. um, have contributed to uh, uh, growing inequality, growth of the skill premium, increased economic insecurity. Mm-hmm. Where uh, as as we've re- re- reminded one another this morning, economic insecurity is part of the uh, backdrop to these. Uh, the the appeal of populism. Um, As I read the scholarly work that has been done on this subject a tiny bit by me, but a lot by other economists, it has been primarily skill-biased technical change and not globalization that in recent decades, since the 1970s, when the increase in inequality in a variety of, uh, of advanced countries began to become more evident, it's, it's primarily technical change and only globalization in a subsidiary sense that has uh, been at work here. It's uh, hard, easier to blame globalization, however, than it is the march of progress, if you will, that firms are figuring out uh, how, how to use new technologies in production in a way that in the advanced countries, uh, especially displaces less skilled Workers, you 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 know you can't. It, it's hard to appeal to producers and 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 say please turn turn back the um, uh, course of technological progress than it is to try to uh, say we need to slap tariffs on imports from China.
0: Right. So in a way, it kind of it it it's easier to blame the other, and the other in this case would be China and cheap Chinese imports or stuff coming across the border in the U.S. from Mexico. Um, and, and somehow maybe to connect it to identity issues and,
1: and, and I would I would hesitate to uh, f- forecast which set of factors will will be more important going forward. Forecasting is hard, especially when it involves the future. but uh, <laughs> we've seen how globalization has increasingly been <coughs> creating, international competition in the provision of services. Uh, Sectors that we used to think were sheltered from international competition are not and and won't be as much going forward. And we know uh, increasingly that skilled workers who were not at risk of technological unemployment, if you will, uh, increasingly will be at risk uh, of the same because of, of AI and and that whole complex uh, of technologies.
0: Stephanie, you wanna weigh in on this?
2: I would just add one thing that this skill-based technological change combined with patterns of economic geography is creating these really interesting political cleavages where we see um, cities that are full of high-skilled workers doing well right, prospering, we see regions with low skilled workers really getting hit and, and getting hit hard. And so one of the cleavages that has always existed in politics, but we really see getting reanimated and coming to fore, particularly we saw this in the recent US election, is this division between areas that are populated by high skilled workers versus areas that are heavily populated by less skilled workers. And that's part of the progress is the skill-based technological change that's engendering or deepening these political cleavages.
0: And I guess Barry kind of points out in the, in his book that one of the the problems problems, one of the ways that this um, you get a, a the um, the low skill based parts of the economy have disproportionate political influence because of the way the electoral college is structured, because of the way that um, representation in, um, in in the Senate is structured, um, and also because of the ability to gerrymander uh, um, uh, districts so that you you end up with a situation where um, uh, Biden or Hillary Clinton before him wins the cities, but you know that that doesn't. Uh, there's a certain amount of clout that comes with that, especially economic clout, but not as much political clout. That disproportionately goes, it, it it went, you know, it's gone to to Trump and to the to the Republicans. So here's a question from a psychiatrist, Gail Critchlow. So you're going to have to put on your A different hat, it's a good question. How do elites get away with anti-elitism to galvanize populism? So, um, you know, how is it, um, I mean, what is it? What's the ingredient there? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, maybe we work with Donald Trump here, but there's, you know, there's Trump, there's Boris Johnson, uh, it is, a, it's a kind of interesting, um, uh, you know, in the case of, of, of Trump, Barry, as you pointed out, you know, this is, I mean, uh, maybe you didn't, these are not your words, but he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And, um, uh, and, but nevertheless, he was very, he managed to appropriate this kind of language and make it his own, even if he wasn't delivering um, some of the policies that we've talked about that are associated with at any rate, left-wing populism. So thoughts about this, about how how elites manipulate or use the language and the rhetoric. I don't maybe manipulate is no. I don't think it's too strong. How they how they work with that rhetoric and why it is that people are. Is it just the glam factor that Trump was like a. Um, not like a TV star, you know, with The Apprentice, everybody knew who he was. uh, And so he was able to capitalize on this whereas someone else might not have been able to. And in fact, we know others were not. Pat Buchanan was not able to capitalize on it in the same way, even though he tried back in 1992. Or maybe it's the moment and it's not the person really, or even so much the language. Anyway.
1: I I, I think if we, Look, not only at Trump, but if we look at populist politicians past in Latin America,
0: uh-huh.
1: for example, we I, I think we uniformly see two things. Number one, that that uh, use of rhetoric is distinctive and powerful, uh, personalized attacks on political opponents, uh, for example, uh, if if you look at the, the transcript of rallies uh, of presidential candidates, I think you pretty clearly see that Trump's rhetoric is highly unusual for an American president or uh, presidential candidate. So it, it's partly this instinctual ability to tailor rhetoric to the particular audience. And the second thing you see is that populist politicians regularly are masters of innovative media. They're able to target their messages using innovative media uh, or means of communication. In the 19th century, it was the telegraph and then the railroad, Uh, then it became radio, then it became small aircraft in Latin America starting in the 1930s, bringing their message directly to their preferred audience without it being filtered by uh, the mainstream media. Beyond that, I defer to the psychologists in the audience.
0: Uh, Stephanie, put on your political psychology hat.
2: (laughs) I mean, one thing that it's not directly on this point, but I'm constantly shocked when I do survey research or I read survey research at the level of ignorance or the lack of knowledge about politics. I mean, you ask people basic facts. How many people are in the House of Commons? How many people sit in the House of Lords? Who's the Vice President? I mean, the survey responses you get, the number of people who don't know these common facts is really shocking. And so it could just be really a lack of information and that lack of information is filled by rhetoric coming from the politicians themselves. So that's not a very sophisticated answer, but really I cannot stress enough the the, the lack of information out there in the general public when you read the survey responses, it's, it's really, really surprising. Right, yeah. Um,
0: so here's an IR quest, an international relation from an international relations perspective, it comes from Greece. By the way, I wanna welcome the folks from Greece, Spain, Nigeria and Peru who have joined us. Um, so this comes from Thanos Plexidas, I think. Sorry if I butchered your name. Um, happens to me all the time. So from an IR perspective, could could populism be a response of developed countries towards their losing their dominant, toward losing their dominant economic position, denying openness in trade and social inclusion, thus trying to halt the developing world's rise. So, you know, so this is, they're looking at kind of the rise of Western populism and to what extent is this a, a reaction to, um, perhaps one way to frame this is the elephant curve, you know, but to um, uh, you know, to the the distribution of wealth globally um, and and pushback um, uh, against it. Thoughts about this from a kind of like larger international frame, Barry?
1: Yeah, I think um, Trump's initial uh, reaction to China. Uh, mm-hmm. was based on, on the rise of China as an, an economic power and his argument that this was uh, wreaking destruction, economic destruction on the United States. And uh, that argument uh, evolved over time into a broader IR argument having to do with geopolitical mm-hmm. uh, competition as well. So I, I I think there is in the case of the United States at least much to the point Stephanie
2: um, I think that it, it, I think the story does make sense in the US as Barry has suggested. it's harder to see it in the UK or in France, right France wants out of the EU but they're not particularly bothered if the EU continued to exist, right? They really want, it's a drawbridge type of populism. UK the same, a drawbridge type of populism. I wanna raise the doors on my country but what what goes on outside is 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 immaterial and so even though the uk voted to leave the eu they still have lots of a uh, tariff free access for developing countries and that hasn't changed right they still have lots and lots of special deals with developing countries allowing their goods into the uk market and those will continue to exist even after brexit is signed and sealed when it's signed and sealed so I, I think it's an interesting idea, but it doesn't square with what I know about the populist movements in the U.K. and France.
0: Yeah. So we have a couple questions on here about that. Um, if I kind of group them, um, uh, have to do with with do's and don'ts for President-elect Biden, um, and and this really for for both of you. I mean, given what has happened. Um, You know, uh, given Trump, given America first, given the level of support um, among um, uh, non-college educated, uh, especially white voters, though it should be pointed out that for Trump, that Trump uh, attracted a lot of Hispanic voters this time, Um, there was a surge there. And also, uh, Afri- an increase uh, in African uh, American male voters, but especially, I mean, he really kind of drilled down and expanded the base with with um, white non college educated um, voters, with blue collar voters, and uh, and a lot of them voted for Donald Trump. And so, as we look at Joe Biden, um, and, and uh, a Biden administration. Um, and we look at the types of people that Biden is bringing into the administration. I mean, what does he need to be thinking about kind of politically to respond to this in a way that, um, you know, you know um, allows him to address these concerns with, um, without alienating his own political base, which is heavily um, a, a lot of college-educated voters, as, as you pointed out, Barry, who once voted, many of whom from the suburban areas, who, who once voted Republican and have moved over into the Democratic column, at least, you know, starting in 2018 and then again in 2020. So some thoughts about kind of do's and don'ts um, for if, if, if you were invited, then nobody put it this way, but if if uh if Joe Biden reached out to one or both of you for uh advice on on do's and don'ts um what would you advise him on this kind of question
1: well i think i would start by sharing with him our previous conversation about the dangers of letting openness and globalization get too far out ahead of uh uh domestic security and develop uh, and, and prosperity related initiatives. And then I, I, I think I would say specifically um, that uh, thing, things you can do at home in, in, include uh, pushing your healthcare agenda, which, you know, uh, lack of access to health care or affordable health care is a big issue for working class households in the United States. Uh, uh, address the minimum wage issue because there are an awful lot of people who are living what what we might call too close to the margin of subsistence. Uh, number three, avoid the kind of financial instability that translated into unemployment and economic insecurity and uh, other initiatives that, that Main Street didn't like too much after 2008, 2009, uh, that would be a start, but otherwise um, uh, a lot of what needs to be done cannot be done over a short horizon in the course of one administration, things like uh, uh, education and training and lifelong learning. And that makes me uh, more pessimistic about whether whether the United States with the polarized politics we were talking about before can Mm -hmm. Sustain longer-term initiatives on those fronts.
0: All right. Do you think, for before I turn it over to Stephanie, that so you shared uh, you have another book uh, in the works on on um, why public debt is a good thing, but uh, um, but there are uh, there's going to be a lot of Republicans who are arguing fairly soon that public debt is a bad thing. Um, even if they turned a blind eye to it um, uh, during the, the the Trump years, and for things like healthcare, I mean, do you think he can um, he can really expand that and push on a number of the things that you are mentioning and and get sufficient support? I think I mean what you seem to be suggesting is kind of going over the heads of Republicans in a way inside you know, uh, Republican leaders and trying to actually go to the Republican base and say, look, these things are good for you. I mean, you know, this is um and certainly that's true. We know from public opinion polls that healthcare is quite popular, uh, Obamacare, maybe called something else. But um uh, but you do you think that's feasible politically to get that kind of traction? Well
1: much you know, we we'll have to talk again after the um Georgia uh, senatorial runoffs <laughs> in Georgia um, you know which will make a, a a big difference for for what can be done by a Biden ad- administration domestically and what uh, what can't um, yeah I think uh, you know I think Biden, all through the campaign, was trying to appeal to those working class voters, uh, some of whom, many of whom, had defected to Trump in 2016, and it's it's his temperament and his political strategy to keep doing that, uh, regardless of who retains control of the Senate. On the on the question of uh, how to finance these initiatives. Um, some of them can be financed through, through taxation, which uh, I will remind you was was cut in 2017, 2018, and a higher capital gains tax, which okay. is on the table, or higher uh, income taxes for, for uh, people with incomes over $400,000, or uh, raising the cap on social security ta- uh, uh, tax payments in order to begin to address the entitlement problem uh those are those are steps that in in principle could be taken by an administration working together with a congress
0: the first two would be popular i think maybe the third one not so much but the first two he he probably could get some traction with voters stephanie some thoughts about this about you know if you get that call from joe biden you know, maybe you get a call to be in the administration but if you get a call for uh, political advice as a consularian, like what, what would you do to address in a way, solve, you know, kind of, uh, uh, address these words inside the United States, um, to make the United States, uh, more whole, what would you, where, so where, what would you advise?
2: I think we have good ideas about how, the, the advice is there, right? There's good research showing us what we need to do, what could work. Uh, the things that Barry have suggested, right? Increase education funding, increased training, help people ensure that they're able to readjust, become reemployed, deal with the, the changes in skill-based uh, technologies. We could even try things like increased funding for trade adjustment assistance, try providing funding for place-based policies. We know certain places are getting hit hard by technology, by globalization. But all of these programs are not happening and that's the million dollar question, right? That's the puzzle. Why aren't mainstream parties doing more to halt the rise of populists? That's the really hard question. We know what the solutions are We don't know how to get there. And that is ultimately a political question. And it's hard to, it's, part of it is about the time horizon, as Barry said, right? Tax cuts are immediately beneficial for that politician, right? They're immediately going to get benefits. They're facing an electorate. They're facing the election. They want to do policies that have short-term benefits, but funding education, funding retraining program, these are something that only pay off in the really long term. And that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen mainstream parties do as much as we think they could do or should do to try to halt the rise of populism, particularly on the extremes.
0: Maybe just to pick up on that, too. And, and um, I mean, you both have alluded to this. You just did, Stephanie. I, I, there are a number of questions here that have come through the um, the chat box um, that are on um, kind of the question of the issue of disinformation and in um, the quality, improving the quality of democratic discourse. Ben Grazda, uh, an LSE MSC, I'm not sure in what, um, asked, and I, I think he frames it uh, as succinctly as, as as any of the others here could creating a more democratic discourse with more perspectives and less disinformation result or help create less populism and I think probably the answer is yes but the question is like how does how does one do that um, what are the steps what does one look to um, uh, I mean the answer is certainly not a new Trump TV station so, <laughs> which may be in the offing I don't know but no but in in more seriously um, we've uh, w- the system has been so flooded with disinformation um, you know maybe the first step is putting competent people in positions where they're communicating real information. Um, but what else, I mean, how else do we need to, what else do we need to be thinking about here? I, I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. And so I'm actually really interested in what both of you have to say. Uh, I definitely
1: definitely agree that, uh, uh, getting some adults back into government would, would be a step forward. Um, and, and, and that uh, their absence has kind of uh, opened the floodgates for uh, politicians who uh, um, want to provide non- non-factual information in, in, in support of their own agendas. Beyond that, uh, the o- obvious problem is the uh, decline of media gatekeepers and the rise of media platforms Uh, You know who I'm talking about, that that are uh, conduits for misinformation and uh, 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 facilitators of political fragmentation and that create political echo chambers. Now we're beginning to have a conversation about what kind of moderation those uh, uh, platforms ought to provide of their own content. I don't, I don't have uh, clear views uh, of what should be done other than to say the uh, status quo is not working.
0: Stephanie?
2: Um, one thing that's striking, being an American who now lives in the UK, is the role of a publicly funded media broadcaster who has to be balanced. And so it's not a silver bullet, but it's really striking, I think, to move between the two media markets and to see the different type of discourse that you hear in a media market that's fully commercial versus a media market that has a state-funded public broadcaster that is, at least in theory, committed to to providing both sides of the story. So maybe that's a potential way to change at least some of the conversation around some of these issues.
1: I now get my, uh, uh, Evening television news from the BBC too.
2: Excellent. <laughs> I'll continue to pay my BBC license fee for you, Barry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Um, so we we have um, we have a, a little over uh, ten minutes here um, left. Um, there are a, a series of questions that have come through in in different forms um, that have. Um, um, that are, are asking, um, you know, isn't populism, uh, I, I see there's one here from Jeff Colgrave. There's, uh, actually several different people. Isn't populism just a reflection in a sense that liberalism has failed and that it is, it's symptomatic of, um, of, um, Uh, it's not just a function of kind of disinformation campaigns and so forth, but that something was fundamentally wrong in the way that mainstream parties, whether it was in the UK or in the United States or in France, you know, um, were uh, the, the path that they were charting. And that this is just simply, this is blowback, and in a sense, it's kind of, it's payback. And, um, and that the, the source of this, you know, I think, the, I think the issue here is that the source of this is actually the policies themselves. I, I, I don't, you know, you've all, you both have addressed this, I think, in, in different ways, but this is a kind of more pointed version, it seems to me, of the issue. Um, thoughts about this?
1: I I would agree that liberalism has failed and I would add that it's failed more than once. That uh, it failed in the 1920s in a way. It led to uh, a a, a, a populist backlash mainly on the right in the 1930s and it gave way to what uh, I guess political scientists refer to as embedded liberalism, Carl Polanyi and, and the, the great transformation and all that, where uh, the, the market economy was supplemented by the, uh, turned into a a social market economy in different ways, in different settings, in different countries. So the really interesting and important question is how we forgot that lesson and how we effectively, in a variety of countries, dismantled those uh, institutions put in place uh mainly in 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 the aftermath of World War two how the beverage report gave way to uh various successors uh in the u k uh mm-hmm. under margaret thatcher and subsequently and 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 what really allowed uh that that movement to gain the traction that it did i I think part of the answer is that other economic principally economic problems came along in the 1970s that suddenly led to slower economic growth and the nature of technical change shifted as we touched on earlier, really again, starting in the 1970s when uh, educational attainment had risen as a result of two decades of heavy investment in the same uh, by the 1970s. Uh, The incentives to Uh, Engage in different kinds of innovation changed and uh, the new technologies that came along after that uh, were involved uh, capital skill complementarities, benefited skilled workers, uh, I I, I, I think of an increased inequality. So I think dissatisfaction with the status quo in part led to this reaction, downsizing, dismantling the welfare state in ways that uh, uh, ultimately gave rise to the populist blowback.
0: How how much, wait, before I turn to Stephanie on this, do you, some people would argue in addition to the things that you've just raised that, that some of this really has to do with the erosion of labor as a political force, as a kind of check so that, you know, that it was easier to unwind what you're, you know, uh, embedded liberalism uh, once because labor as a political force begins to decline actually back starting in the 1960s, right? And so that as it loses traction, there's less of a check and a balance in the system. Um, I mean, do, where do you come down on that? Do you think that there's that? I mean, because this is an argument, if to the extent that that's true, for labor to reorganize itself. Yeah, I,
1: I, I think the decline of labor as a political force but also an economic force mm. is uh, directly relevant uh, that um, if, if you look at evidence over time and across countries, um, the economic leverage significance uh, of organized labor is, is, uh, plays importantly into inequality. So uh, Ronald Reagan and the air traffic, controllers, Margaret Thatcher and the coal miners, is certainly part of
0: this story as well. Yeah, yeah. Stephanie.
2: I would just uh, echo Barry in saying it is difficult when you look at the historical narratives to say we saw liberalism fail. The post-World War II economy was supposed to be embedded liberalism. It was this idea that we would have multilateralism, free trade globalization along with compensation. And so it's difficult now to see that we learned the lesson and now it looks like we've forgotten that lesson.
0: Barry, I want to ask you actually, both Barry and and Stephanie. So we haven't talked much about um, China and this is not a question about Xi Jinping and populism. So I'm not going to drag you there, Um, but more about the China question in the context of American politics in the debate over questions of trade and, um, and, and populism, um, uh, going forward. I mean, it, it seems to me that, um, uh, while well, maybe Donald Trump framed things in a, in a way that, um, um, Uh, You know, uh, he was ultimately self-defeating on the China question for him, and you know, uh, led to a lot of instability there. Um, It it nevertheless resonates um, tremendously in the United States, you know, and not just in the U.S. I was looking at a there are these Pew polls that are out now on I don't know whether you've seen these on attitudes towards China um, uh, across the OECD. And it is remarkable, especially since COVID, how kind of, I don't know, anti, you know, kind of negative feelings towards China had spiked in country after country, but it is very true in the United States. And, um, you know, that is the kind of, that is fodder, it seems to me, for somebody who really wants to make a run for to pick up Donald Trump's mantle and uh, inside the Republican party, whether it's a Josh Hawley or um, a Marco Rubio or, you know, if if Trump doesn't clog up the lane until 2024. But I I think the question here is, what does that mean for, for a Joe Biden and for a Democrat that's in office right now in dealing with China and the kind of trade economic, I mean, China is like the poster child for like globalization in the United States, it seems to me. And, um, and everything that's wrong with it it, that, uh, you know, in Americans minds. And so I'm just wondering kind of what you think about um, how the current administration should be dealing with that and how that's likely to play itself out in in the U S or in the UK and in Europe.
1: I would, preface my answer by saying that Pew probably doesn't do surveys in China as well. But, <laughs> but it is a fact, I believe, that uh, anti-US sentiment has spiked in China. Mm-hmm. And this is fodder for President Xi and, mm-hmm. and his policies. So it cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think at this point, in contrast to 2017, concern with China revolves uh, uh, among American voters, the -hmm. typical American voter revolves around uh, economics. I think the conversation certainly at elite levels among politicians, but more broadly as well, uh, looks at China as a geopolitical or strategic rival Mm -hmm. in the South China Sea is concerned about China's surveillance capitalism or whatever you want to call it about uh Huawei and 5G is concerned about human rights in China. Uh so I think the e- economics is only one small aspect of uh, of those tensions. So what should be done about it? Uh presumably Biden has four years to demonstrate that it one can influence China more effectively by building a coalition of willing countries, all of whom are on the same page on their China policy, rather than, uh, you know, recklessly slapping tariffs on one thing one week and, 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 and another thing another.
0: Right. Okay. Very thoughtful. Um, Stephanie, any closing thought? We have, you have a minute.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Biden will continue to be tough on China. He's yeah. not gonna change that stance. He's gonna change how it works. He's gonna build coalitions, find willing partners and and really try to engender change in China through multilateral engagement. And so it's just the means rather than the ends that'll yeah. change.
0: Okay, all right, that's great. Well, so, you know, uh, well folks on the on the platform, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, it's been a, a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to um, Professor, um, Eichen Green today and Professor Rickard. Plenty of food for thought here. Um, Barry and Stephanie, on behalf of the US Center and and the LSC, I wanna thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts about populism, uh, the road ahead, what Joe Biden should do. They could not come at a more critical time. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, To everybody out there, um, stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, take care, and we look forward to seeing you uh, at another event. Bye now.